It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world, with its own needs. Let me bring your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no sheets. The whole animal fucking platter with the fear fight down, like fire in a fire. This is the southern gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. In the dark heart of the city... A mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. And Nurse Amy. Yes, we are still here in South Florida. We got stuck because of Nestor. You know, it's funny, honey. Every single time we want to leave, either right after we leave or just before we leave, a hurricane stirs up. That's right. And I joked yesterday to someone in a store. I said, oh, we're going to go up to Tennessee. I sure hope you guys don't have a hurricane while we're gone. (laughs) We always seem to. And then we got home, and you turned on the television, and there was this big radar disturbance in the Gulf. In the Gulf. And you said, look, honey, and I I thought you were showing, like, you were joking with me, and you were showing me something from, like, years ago. Oh, ha, 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 I said. (laughs) You were like, no, it's real. There." There really are storms all over Florida. So it kind of trapped us down here in South Florida. Um, But we're going to leave soon. Anyway, this is... The Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. A canyon of caring in a careless and cranky world. It's a little cranky because of the storms. That's right, mostly. I'll tell you, I am... Dr. Bones, Joe Alton, MD, and this beautiful lady is... Amy Alton. Also again, known as... Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the gang of two. We are the queen and the codger. We are the spectacular spouses, and we're here <laughs> to help the faithful few keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a geriatric giraffe? That's terrible. I know how bad those geriatric cases can be since I'm one of the old folks myself. I'll tell you, in any case, our attorney says, don't call us. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Absolutely. But when the situation is going south, you got to show the world that you got more sense than the Lord gave a duck 
and get the training and education that you need. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit as well? You need that. So there's no better place, in my opinion, to get that quality medical kit than Nurse Amy's entire line of very often imitated, but very never equaled, very, very never, very never <laughs> equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I can't argue with that. <laughs> you, you shouldn't. I want you guys out there to compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. I think you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. If you want more proof, just check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. On top of that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. It's getting to that time of year. you got to use that money for something. So go look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store. And don't forget, please, to subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net to get special coupons in our newsletters. We do our best to keep prices down because we need you guys out there to be medically prepared. Hey, a fractured femur, a gunshot wound to the chest. These are major injuries that affect your chances to survive in disaster settings, but not all injuries are so extreme. Minor injuries can also impact the efficiency of a group member off the grid. Of these, nail bed injuries are some that you'll commonly see, and when you see them, sometimes they can look pretty bad. You can imagine that nail bed injuries are going to be much more common when untrained and perhaps careless people perform tasks to which they are not accustomed. In disaster or survival settings, that would mean things like chopping wood for fuel, clearing debris, all sorts of other stuff you might not do every day. The failure to use work gloves and boots, that may also increase the risk of mishaps and you might be caught in some weird catastrophe with a pair of flip-flops and just your bare hands. As a matter of fact, it's more likely you'll wind up like that than carrying a pack of personal protection gear. By the way, Amy, you have personal protection gear on your store, right? We do. We actually have some sets put together. One is a little smaller and more basic, and the other one actually includes things like a bio biohazard suit. The whole suit, right? Oh, yeah, a full face mask. N95s, uh, the hood that goes with the biohazard suit, um, it's complete. All that great stuff. Well, I've, we're going to talk about nail bed injuries. First, I want to talk a little bit about nail anatomy. Your fingers and your toenails are made up of protein and a tough substance known as keratin. They're very similar to the claws of animals. Any issue that refers to nails is called ungual, ungual from the Latin word for the claws of an animal. Unguis is what the Latin is. The nail consists of several different parts. The nail plate, that's the hard covering at the end of your finger or toe, what you normally would consider to be the nail. And then the nail bed, that's the skin directly under the nail plate. And that's made up of dermis and epidermis, just like the rest of your skin. The superficial epidermis moves along with the nail plate as it grows. There are vertical grooves that attach the superficial epidermis to the deep dermis. Now, in old folks like me, you can actually see them. The nail plate thins out enough that you can see the grooves if you look really closely. Like all skin, there's blood vessels and nerves that also run through the nail bed, and these can be injured when there is some kind of trauma. Then like, you have wait, like slamming your finger in like, a door, right? In <laughs> a or, car door, <laughs> or missing the nail and hitting your finger instead of the, uh, with your hammer. Oh, ouch! Then you have what's called the nail matrix, sometimes called the germinal matrix, and that's the portion or root at the base of the nail under the cuticle. The cuticle is called, in medical speak, the uh, it's called the eponychium. 
And this matrix that's under the cuticle is what produces new cells for the nail plate. You can see a portion of the matrix if you take a look at your fingers right now in the lighter colored sort of half moon that you see at the base of every nail. That's called a lunula, little moon, basically, and it's visible at the base of every nail plate. This is, or it should be at least, this is part of the germinal matrix that makes new nail cells and determines the shape and thickness of the nail. If you have a curved matrix, you get a curved nail. If you have a flat matrix, you have a flat nail. That's what it produces. Now, there are different types of nail injuries, amputations and fractures, all sorts of stuff that can be really terrible, but mostly you'll see, more commonly, lacerations. A nail bed laceration is a injury where the nail and underlying tissue, the nail bed, is cut, and this can occur as a result of a knife injury. It could be caused by a crush injury as well, and these wounds are going to bleed pretty well and leave bruising, which could take a very long time to heal. Then you have nail bed avulsions. An avulsion occurs when your nail and your nail bed is pulled off the finger. Mm. And that's something that is pretty terrible. You, you see that when a finger is jammed into a tight space very quickly. Uh, it could be caused by a lot of different traumatic injuries. This injury is very painful, so much so that it's been used as a form of torture. I was just going to say, you see it on movies. Yes. In Pull action, In action movies, when they want to get information out of someone. Right. You're exactly right. And that's exactly the kind of action I don't want. Ow. I mean, really. <laughs> and then there's the subungual. Remember, ungual refers to nails. Subungual hematoma. And when bleeding occurs under the nail plate, it's often trapped and it accumulates under the nail plate where the nail bed is. And what it does, is it forms a hematoma, basically a, an accumulation of blood. And it's the classic result of hing- of what you said was the finger smashed hitting, in a door, right, right? Or again, like you said, with a hammer, the and, hammer missing the nail right, and hitting your finger. Instead of the nail, yes. You can expect throbbing pain and some bruising when this happens, and when a significant amount of blood accumulates, it actually lifts the nail plate right off of the nail bed. It's and that's, like a pocket. That's a big of issue. blood because you, it doesn't have anywhere else to go. Exactly right. And so it exerts pressure on the least resistance least resistance, which is going to be the nail bed. In normal settings, an x-ray is often performed to rule out a fracture of the finger. You're not going to have modern medical technology like that available off the grid, though, so you got to figure out what's going on. There are some procedures you can perform with a good medical kit and supplies. In the case of a laceration or an avulsion, well, what you can do is you can numb the area with local anesthesia if you have it, and do what we call a digital block. We actually have an article on how to perform a digital finger block on the website at doomandbloom.net. Make sure that you check that out. If you can get a hold of some lidocaine, some uh, local anesthesia, it is a good way to be able to work on a finger, figure out what's going on, and be able to take care of it. Now, what you should always do when there is the nail bed injury is you clean the nail bed thoroughly with an antiseptic, flush out any debris if you can, you paint it with an antiseptic like a betadine, a povidone iodine solution, or some other antiseptic solution, chlorhexidine. Uh, I think Hibiclens is the brand name for that. And you can start. You want to cover the exposed and very sensitive nail bed with some kind of dressing. And usually a non-adherent dressing, also called a Telfa dressing, is going to be the best. You can make your own non-adherent dressing using petroleum jelly and 
sort of mixing that up, making a sort of mushy kind of gauze, and yeah, putting like that a as a covering, layer. as a protective covering. Exactly. You want to change it frequently. You want to avoid ordinary gauze. Remember, it sticks tenaciously to raw areas, like the raw open nail bed mm-hmm. would be very painful to remove. If the nail bed is hanging on by a thread, remove it by separating it from the skin folds by using a hemostat by one of our little clamps. You can consider placing the avulsed nail bed on the nail itself as a protective covering. If you can't use an actual Telfa dressing or a petroleum jelly dressing, you can't do it, well, at the very least, you can take the nail plate and place it on the nail bed as a protective covering. So that's the same concept of when you pop a blister, a large blister. Of course, you don't want to pop small blisters. By placing a sterile pin, pin by pin, I mean a straight pin. Pin, pin, right, yes. <laughs> Not an ink pin. <laughs> <laughs> or or the tip of a scalpel, very, very tiny, and just putting a little hole into the side of blister and letting the top of the blister skin come down. Again, using your own skin, or in this case, the nail, to protect the skin that's raw and needs to heal underneath. So it's the same concept. Exactly right. Now, if you have lacerations in the nail bed tissue, it's something you would close possibly in some circumstances. You would suture it with the thinnest gauge absorbable suture that you possibly can use. And uh, Vicryl polyglycolic acid is an absorbable synthetic suture. Uh, Chromic catgut is something else that's absorbable. Mm -hmm. Plain catgut also. Chromic catgut lasts a little bit longer because they dip it in a chromic uh, solution. And so those are things that you could use as part of your closure. Now, what you want to make sure, though, is you want to remove any nail plate tissue that's over the laceration so the suture repair is going to be complete and you can see everything that's going on. If you you have loose edges, you don't want to scrape them off in the area of the matrix because that's what's what's making the new cells. And when it's making the new cells, it's going to really make... A difference in terms of the healing. If it may the heal shape some of the very nail. right, exactly, and, may and, be. Oh yeah, skewed. absolutely, exactly. So Crooked, this is something, bent, right? And you can have some really funky, crazy-looking nail <laughs> tissue nail coming out, right? and you won't even know it's going to happen because it takes months for it to come in. I have that right here on my pointer finger. Let me see. This this finger was squished in a door, uh, so I actually know, and I lost most of the nail, and so the matrix underneath my nail is very low, and mm. this has a discoloration on one side. Let me see. see that's oh, a little yeah, darker. Oh, yeah, a tiny, tiny bit. And it actually misshaped my nail. So it kind of grows this way on one side of the, the nail, the finger versus the other way. Well, it looks normal to me pretty Aww. much, so thank goodness <laughs> for that. Otherwise, you could call you old clawfoot. Claw I don't know. Or, right? I don't know what. <laughs> All right, so anyhow, what you're going to want to do once you are done Closing that and covering it up, you want to put a fingertip dressing on. There are a lot of uh, digit kind of um, dressings that will cover that up. Some will stabilize the digit with a finger splint, which we have finger splints in a lot of our kits to protect it from further damage. Of course, a contaminated wound is going to require antibiotics, probably a option that you're going to want to use, and, and maybe a tetanus shot as well. That would make a lot of sense. Now, if you are treating not a avulsion or a laceration, but a hematoma, subungual hematoma, well, that's something different. If 
A crush injury causes a bruise that is, that's known as a ecchymosis. That's what we call a bruise in medical speak. It's going to be painful, but usually just for a short time. So if you only have just a little bit of blood under the nail bed, some ibuprofen, some pain meds probably would be just fine. A hematoma, however... If you have a good accumulation of blood under the nail plate, well, that's going to continue to be painful even several hours after the event, maybe even more. A bruise is very likely to appear brownish or blue, but if you have a hematoma, that's going to be a bluish-black color. Now, in a significant hematoma, some people suggest a further procedure called trephination. And in this instance, a very fine drill or a red-hot 18-gauge IV needle or even a, just a paper clip is used with some heat to make a hole in the nail plate large enough to drain the blood out of the hematoma and relieve the pressure from under the nail. And, of course, that would help relieve some of the pain. It shouldn't be too painful if you don't go too deep with your paperclip or your 18-gauge needle. Now, this is very important, by the way, to avoid damage to the nail bed because if that's the case, it looks like you have that much fluid under there, that mu- that you just can't get it off maybe if it covers more than 50% of the nail, well, oftentimes they recommend removing the entire nail plate in that situation, short, of course, of the nail matrix. So you have to keep your finger clean. You got to keep it dry, splinted, bandaged for a minimum of 48 hours after you do that. Most inexperienced medics should avoid this procedure altogether if they can, except in the most severe cases or if there's just no help going to be coming because the pain, well... If you leave it alone, it probably will decrease over time, even if you do nothing. Now, it's important to know that damage to the base of the nail, or in other words, the germinal matrix, could be difficult to completely repair. Future nail growth, as Amy notes here, although I don't really see too, it doesn't look that unusual to me, <laughs> well, thank, thank you. goodness. You know what? It happened probably <clears throat> when I was maybe 16 or 17. Oh, that was a little when while I had, Last year. When I had, yeah. <laughs> When I had my first car, it was a Camaro, a 76 Camaro. And those doors were solid metal. Heavy, oh. heavy, heavy. And you close the door on your finger. Yes. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. So we're not talking about, you know, like a cheap plastic lightweight door. No. This was like slamming a hammer on it. Crazy, baby. <laughs> and by the way, my finger was stuck. I actually had to open the door handle to get my finger out. Wow. It was crushed. Yeah. Ooh, okay, well, <laughs> as I said, those things can happen and they can cause all sorts of issues. So anyhow, future nail growth can be deformed. And, and in situations where there's modern medical care, you oftentimes call in a hand surgeon. There are actually specialists that do surgery only on hands. And they give the injury the best chance to heal appropriately by picking the right surgical procedure. But even then, there's a higher incidence of issues with ingrown toenails, ingrown fingernails, things like that. And a completely torn off nail or a nail that you had to take off yourself, that's going to take about four to six months to grow back. So remember, don't try this at home, folks, if there are qualified medical professionals available to evaluate and treat the injury. Hey, do you have an idea for a show topic? Do you? Hey, there you go. How want to ask us a question? Do you want to just talk to the geezer or the goddess? <laughs> well, don't you wait, Nate. Send us an email or sign up to connect with us in these many ways. Absolutely, you can write to us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. That's pretty easy to remember. This is 
Dr. Bones, Bones, and we're doing a, a podcast. podcast. Dr. Bones podcast. <laughs> and again, AOL. Someone says, "How come you still have AOL?" Well, that's what we had in the beginning. It's what we know. We've G- had that since the Gmail's early nineties. All like messed up when they give you responses and stuff. Anyway. I know how to work it. It works great. You can also find You really us- know how to work it, baby. I do, yes. Mm. Twitter. We have a Twitter at Prepper Show. We have an Instagram, and that's super long. That's Doom and Bloom Medical. So there'll be two M's between the the M on the Bloom and the M on the Medical. So don't forget that. Also, we have Facebook. We have a page, Doom and Bloom. We have a group. Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy, and I think that's oh the YouTube channel. Oh yes, you can yes. find that by looking up uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy also, or just looking up Doom and Bloom. We'll pull it up also. We have lots and lots of videos, uh, educational videos, informational videos, demonstrations. Uh, some earlier videos are actually on container gardening. Yes. I did raised beds. Yep. Yeah, no, actually, the most popular gardens. ones you have, actually, on there seem to be about that. Well, it's difficult to grow food in Florida, so I had to come up with some way to sustain us if we had some terrible disaster, figure out where I would plant things, go ahead and try to get our soil together, because goodness knows, if you try to dig a hole in South Florida, just going to have a terrible pH. There's like no nutrients. I don't know how anything grows. We can't even grow normal grass here. What do we call this? Crab grass? <laughs> St. Augustine. St. Augustine. It's like fake grass, folks, for you you lucky people who live up north and have that beautiful green grass. Little, Ours is like a weed mixed sort of with fine, weeds. <laughs> looks like the, the fairway of a, you know, on a golf course. Up north, yeah. Mm. Ours is terrible. Anyway, so I had to figure out how we were going to plant food, and the only possible option was raised beds and containers. So we started amending the soil, and I just felt it was important to share this with for other folks that might not have beautiful soil in their backyard and what options they might be able to take to no, to know. get it to be better and, and to plant some food. I think there are so many views because people just want to see your pretty, pretty face. Oh, you're sweet. I know. Sweet and silly. Sweet and silly. <laughs> well, as we mentioned, we are going to the Smoky Mountains. We're leaving our sea level medical museum of mystery down here in South Florida and we're usually, though, if you think about it, although we're going to the mountains, we're usually lower than 5,000 feet there. It's not like the Rocky Mountains. The Smoky Mountains are a much older mountain range, and so they're sort of eroded down. And But they still go up. I think the Mount Mitchell uh, in North Carolina is about almost 7,000 yes, feet. I, but that's I, about as high as it gets. I won't be going to the top anytime soon, <laughs> unless you want to take a 10-day trip. <laughs> <laughs> Stop about every half a mile on that incline. Yes. I see some of those inclines. I'll do a back and forth, you know, like they do in Grand Canyon. Yeah. They have trails that, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not real steep. They traverse. And yeah. you traverse back and forth. I'll do one of those as on long a donkey. as I'm not, <laughs> my face is not in in the path in front of me. You know what I mean? Right. it's so steep. <laughs> like know. six inches. Just close your eyes and let the donkey or the mule find its way. Yeah. No, so I can, I can do those, and we can do some that aren't aren't very steep, but uh, maybe a little bit every once in a while. Yeah. M- less difficult in between. Just got to catch my breath. 
but but we've done some good hikes in that area. Now I, I think our place Six is miles about. We did one. What do you think our place is? Gallenberg is at eighteen hundred uh, feet above and sea how level. How high so is our house? Probably three thousand. Then I would think. I would think, yeah, because we seem pretty high up above the city. We can see the whole city of Gatlinburg. That's right. From our house. So doing this and going up to maybe 3,000 feet or go maybe taking a hike in one of the higher elevations, we'll go up to maybe 5,000 feet. Uh-huh. And the change in altitude really doesn't do a lot to us physically. I mean, usually we tolerate yeah. the change in altitude from going to sea level, going up to you know, 5,000 feet, pretty good. But once you hit 6,000 feet, 7,000 feet, 8,000 feet or more, you really run the risk of altitude sickness, especially if you're making a very rapid ascent. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do. If they go skiing, they'll go maybe from South Florida to Colorado somewhere and wind up in Vail, where you're at 8,500 feet above sea level. It, right, within just a few hours. And you start feeling sick. There's a, a journal called the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, it reports that 33.5% of the population lives below an elevation of 100 meters above sea level. That means that in any major disaster, most people that are getting out of Dodge are probably going to be heading for higher elevations. And so there's a possibility you might have to abruptly relocate from a a home at sea level to a bug-out location well, well into the mountains. The experts recommend, the funny thing is the experts recommend no more than a 1,000 feet increase in altitude a day. That seems so unlikely to happen if you're hitting the road in a vehicle, especially in a, if you're bugging out if you're hitting the road because of some survival setting or disaster. I mean, maybe on foot you can make a 1,000 feet in a day without too much trouble. <laughs> but, I, I mean, you can, you can do it with... It might be hard. It might be harder. Actually, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It might be harder to do it on foot. A thousand feet takes us about ten minutes to get from Gatlinburg to our our place in a car. In a car, and we go up more than a thousand feet. Right. So, so anyhow, many people, many people adjust to changes in climate and altitude very, very easily. No big deal. Others don't. The rapid change in elevation could cause altitude sickness, or what they call also acute mountain sickness, or AMS. A certain amount of oxygen is needed to maintain the body physically and mentally as well. The availability of this oxygen is less as the air pressure decreases at higher elevations, and that leads to a deficit of oxygen in the blood, also known as hypoxemia, and that's a major issue in mountain sickness. It occurs most commonly once you hit about 8,000 feet, above sea level, although some people do experience symptoms a little bit lower. At present, there's not a lot of hard data that predicts exactly which flatlander in your party is going to be developing symptoms. As I mentioned, the speed of ascent and the altitude that's reached at the end are general factors, but you might have somebody who you consider to be the strongest member of your group be the one most affected, most sick from the altitude sickness. The effects of The condition, well, they're more noticeable with the exertion caused by traveling up by foot. And if you have to really go up fast, you will notice that because you're doing a lot of exertion at the same time. Most will improve with rest, though, if you can just stop and rest from time to time. And that will slow down the actual ascent and give you a better chance to become acclimated to a higher elevation. However, if you don't, Complications can develop that rapidly become life-threatening. 
Now, before I sound too alarmist here, it's perfectly normal to have some symptoms as a result of a change in altitude. They may include things like hyperventilation. You might breathe a little faster. Uh, you may urinate a little bit more. Increased urination is something you'll see. You may have trouble sleeping. Some people have what's called periodic breathing at night, and that's when you are asleep and it wakes you up and you feel like you missed a breath somehow. And you, <gasps> you have to take a little deeper breath inside. And that's called periodic breathing. It's also likely associated with restless sleep as your body tries to regulate itself and adjust its normal pattern. That happens to me sometimes. Now, a typical victim of altitude sickness is going to present to you with hopefully mild symptoms uh, and usually within eight hours or so of reaching a certain elevation, whatever that critical elevation is for them to start having symptoms. They're going to resemble somebody that has a hangover or a case of the flu, but without the associated fever. So they're going to look like they have a flu and feel like they have a flu minus the fever. You can expect to see fatigue, you can uh, problem sleeping. Some of them are going to be dizzy. Mm -hmm. uh, some are going to have headaches. That's very, very common with altitude sickness. Uh, some people will get nauseous. Uh, less commonly, they may vomit. Uh, lack of appetite. The fast heart rate may sometimes go along. It usually goes along with fast breathing. So if people are breathing fast, you can expect their, them to have a relatively fast heart rate. Some people notice various sensations like pins and needles in their fingers or in their toes. And some people get actually short of breath. And that's bad enough. But a percentage of these sufferers are going to progress to a severe state in which you may notice a cough, a chest congestion. Now, the difference is that these people are not going to have nasal congestion. They're going to have deep chest congestion. They're going to have worsening shortness of breath, and they're going to start becoming confused. They're not going to want to help themselves get into uh, a safer situation. And you actually have to wind up taking care of them. They're going to be lose coordination. They're going to be dehydrated, and they may start coughing up blood. Some of them actually lose consciousness and become cyanotic. Now, what's cyanosis? Cyanosis is when your fingertips, when your lips um, or your toes become blue. And so these are common areas where that happens. You can become cyanotic all over. If you do, you're in real trouble. The severe cases are characterized by the accumulation of fluid. All this is happening because you're accumulating fluid. An accumulation of fluid is known as edema in the body, and you're doing that in altitude sickness in certain organs. Unfortunately, very important organs, the lungs and the brain. So high altitude pulmonary edema or lung edema is called HAPE, H-A-P-E, high altitude pulmonary edema. In the brain is called high altitude cerebral edema or HACE, H-A-C-E, and either of these can be life-threatening. And it gives you the symptoms that I just mentioned. Now, in most cases, the treatment of altitude sickness, well, is pretty simple. It's not, it's not really that hard. The patient requires rest, if only to stop further ascent and allow more time to acclimate. And wiser still, of course, is to descend to a lower altitude if you can at all possibly uh, safely. If a lack of available oxygen is a problem with rapid rises in altitude, it makes sense to have maybe one of those portable canisters. We have some of those uh, as part of your medical supplies. And in certain studies that have been done, uh, just a little bit of supplemental oxygen has a result of 
reproducing the effects of descending to a lower altitude. So it's good to have a little supplemental oxygen. It doesn't have to, you don't have to get a big canister. They come in small canisters. Maybe just even a few minutes of it may be, may be helpful. Of course, it'd be great if you had uh, a lot more. Uh, medication that's commonly used for both prevention and treatment is the prescription drug Diamox, also known as acetazolamide. And that is a diuretic. It has an effect which speeds the elimination of excess fluid from the body. Remember, that's what's happening is you're accumulating fluid and it sort of helps you urinate more and so you are eliminating some of that extra fluid. So it helps prevent the accumulation of fluid in the lungs and the brain. And it's superior to a lot of other diuretics in that it forces the kidneys to excrete bicarbonate. If you can eliminate more bicarbonate, the blood becomes a little more acidic. And if you acidify the blood, it stimulates ventilation. That increases the amount of oxygen in the body. You're, you're taking in more. Now, this effect may not be immediate, but it's going to speed up recovery from the altitude sickness or acute mountain sickness. Now, it should be noted that acetazolamide is a prescription medication, but people should, you shouldn't have any problems having your physician prescribe it if you let them know that you're planning a trip to high-altitude areas. If you are doing that on a regular basis, you should be able to get a prescription. Your doctor will be able to determine the right dosage for you. Usually, it ranges from 125 milligrams twice a day to 1,000 milligrams twice a day. That is a really high dose, I think. 125 usually works fine for almost everybody. The average is 125 to 250. Now, some side effects if you take this drug include uh, a weird taste in your mouth. Some people get tingling in the fingertips. Yes. Been there, done that. Yes, so you had some of those symptoms? Yes. The Dymox. Did you have any other symptoms? Where was it that? A weird. You just feel out of body. Uh-huh. Yeah, you feel outer body, and then my hands just felt so weird, tingling. Like, they were numb, almost. Wow. But it was a weird sort of pulsating tingling. It was very strange. Crazy, uh, baby. Yeah, I'm going to have to have some... We're going to have to be in a really high altitude for me to want to... want to do that again? <laughs> take that again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it did make me feel better, but those symptoms were weird and they lasted for a couple days crazy but you know you got to do what you got to do this is a dangerous thing you can't refuse medicine just because you're afraid your fingers are gonna tingle a little bit if i am having this problem you have to make sure i take the medicine that's right and i will cure cure me cure me heal me thy doctor heal thyself nurse you should be able to do that (laughs) well anyhow other medicines that have a beneficial effect include uh, prescription medicines like the blood pressure drug nifedipine and the migraine headache med, and a lot of people know about this, Imitrex, Imitrex. otherwise known as Sumatriptan. And that is one, those are two of the medicines that are good alternatives if you can't tolerate acetazolamide. Although acetazolamide to me is a lesser medicine to both of these, these are pretty uh, strong drugs, in my opinion. Uh, ibuprofen, 600 milligrams three times a day in some people is uh, effective for a mild case. That was a study in 2012 that's suggested using that. And in the worst cases, they use IV steroids like Decadron for people who have edema in the lungs and the brain. Now, once you're down or you have your patient down to more reasonable altitudes, and that's immediately essential if they're having, if they're having severe symptoms, um, 
you can expect the symptoms of a acute mountain sickness to subside over maybe one or two days. It doesn't go away necessarily immediately, but it will go away over time. Now, other than using medications like azetazolamide for prevention, there are simple strategies that will help decrease the risk of altitude sickness. You should choose your route to your retreat so that the ascent is as gradual as possible. Don't attempt more than 2,000 feet of ascent per day if you can, if you can avoid it. Uh, ensure that your personnel do not become dehydrated as they ascend, especially avoid the consumption of alcohol. Both dehydration and alcohol intake make things worse. If there's no choice but to make a quick ascent, it's important to monitor members of your party for their hydration status and their response to exertion, as well as the symptoms and signs that I just mentioned. Now, you may also have a handy and compact item called a pulse oximeter on your person if you're the medic. Uh, this item, measure, it's very small, and measures the oxygen saturation level. You just put it on your finger or the finger of the person that you want to know about. And it's a general measure of the oxygen delivery to the body. You check everybody's oxygen saturation level at, uh, at sea level at, at the very beginning, and then you monitor it at high altitude. As you go up, the oxygen level naturally decreases so you have these handheld pulse oximeters. They're, they're commonly used now in the diagnosis of altitude sickness, and they're helpful in both high-altitude cerebral edema and high-altitude pulmonary edema. If you get below saturation levels of 75%, you are in trouble. You got somebody in trouble. You're usually in the high 90s at sea level, but as once you get a little higher, it goes down. Now, having said that, some people hyperventilate to the point that they seem that to be at reasonable levels, but they're actually beginning to get sick. So you have to be aware. You to look at the whole patient, not just exactly. the reading. In terms of natural products, well, some people, there's not really much evidence one way or another. Some people say that ginkgo biloba may be helpful in the natural prevention of altitude sickness. A small amount of an extract of ginkgo uh, has been shown to allow the brain to tolerate lower oxygen levels in some research, but you know, we need a lot more data before we can say that that is a reliable method of treatment. Now, if you drink alcohol, you might consider a break if you're making a rapid increase in your elevation, like I mentioned. But coffee, interestingly enough, isn't as big a deal. Apparently, if you're a regular coffee drinker, withdrawing from it while ascending may cause you to have a, a lot of headaches. Aha! So how about that? That makes sense. So that Don't is... skip the coffee if you're used to it. So there you go. Hey, we discuss a lot of bacterial and protozoal disease in our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. The, the whole title actually is Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. And thank you so much, you guys. The response in terms of the book has been awesome. And one of the things that we talk about, one of the diseases we talk about how to recognize and how to treat is something called amoebiasis. Yep, like the word amoeba. It is a term for a disease caused by a protozoan parasite, a type of amoeba called Entamoeba histolytica that primarily infects the human bowel but can also affect other organs, most commonly the liver. Entamoeba histolytica can exist in two forms. It lives, lives as a short life as a mobile parasite that has the ability to invade different organ systems, but then it can go or it can start off as a cyst. Uh, that's sort of a dormant form that it's not an egg, it's a cyst. It's a dormant form that's able to colonize a patient and then 
possibly turn into a mobile parasite over time. Amebiasis is very common in a lot of tropical countries, most frequently seen in developing countries. The World Health Organization estimates that each year approximately 50 million people worldwide suffer from some invasive form of amebiasis, leading to about 100,000 deaths. That's a lot. I didn't realize it was that much. Therefore, you have to know how to deal with this situation. I mean, at this protozoa is second only to the parasite that causes malaria as a cause of death. So this is something you should know about and you should know how to treat it. There are a couple of types of amebiasis based on the organs that they attack and their response to different treatments. Intestinal amebiasis, that's an umbrella term for a whole spectrum of intestinal diseases caused by amoeba, including a type of colitis uh, and it attacks the colon, one of the more common forms. It presents with cramping abdominal pain, which can last for several weeks. Wow, that is terrible. As well as a watery and sometimes bloody diarrhea. It's like a kind of almost like a dysentery type look. These people lose a lot of weight. They become dehydrated. They, this can progress to damage the intestines permanently. Sometimes it even causes ulcerations all the way down in the anal region. It is bad news. Another one is the amoebic liver abscess. That's a collection of pus in the liver, and for some reason, it occurs 10 times more commonly in men than women. I'm not sure why. Uh, it's very rare in children, thank goodness. It usually occurs as a separate thing. It's not associated with the intestinal disease, at least not at the same time. So it's interesting that the amoeba seems to attack different organs, and I'm not sure whether it's because it's the form that's involved, uh, whether it's a, the mobile parasite, also called the trophozoite, or whether it's the cyst, the dormant form. It really uh, is not uh, certain, at least to me. Roughly 80% of people that have the liver abscess will present with uh, cough, fever, dull abdominal pain. When It'll be where? Well, where the liver is, and that's in the right upper quadrant. You might feel some pain right below the uh, sternum. Also, that's a possibility. Now, if there's an abscess that attacks or, or involves the diaphragm, which is right above the liver, you might notice some shoulder pain or some pain in the lung area. That is another thing that you can see. The liver may enlarge, by the way, and it can be very painful in an area where there is an abscess. And these abscesses can travel. The abscesses can form in other organs like the lung, the brain, the skin. These are, thank goodness, more rare. Now, to diagnose amoebiasis, it's usually confirmed in the microbiology lab. And, of course, you're not going to have that. Uh, they usually detect serum antibodies, your immune response to the amoeba, and that can aid in the diagnosis. The problem is that patients can remain positive for years after having an infection. If you spent a lot of time outdoors, you may have had it in the past, and it's hard to tell new from old infections. There are a number of antibiotics that do treat this disease, and off the grid, luckily, there's one that you can get in veterinary form. That's Fishzole, F-I-S-H hyphen Z-O-L-E, also known as metronidazole. The, uh, adult, or the human form of it is called flagell. And that is a standard treatment for this kind of problem. The metronidazole is part of the nitroimidazole family. We talk about that in detail in our book. All the other antibiotics, unfortunately, that are used for this aren't really available in veterinary form without a prescription. Not much help in survival settings, but in normal times, of course, you'll have a lot more choices. 
course, clean, disinfected water. That would prevent a lot of the cases that we see in the third world today. Most protozoal or parasitic diseases like that occur from organisms that live in water. And so that is one of those things. And of course, there are various ways to disinfect water. The EPA has a number of different ways that they recommend. Boiling is one. You get water to a roiling boil for a minute. You add a minute for each 1,000 feet of elevation. Or if you're above 5,000 feet, just boil it for three minutes. So that's something that is, I think, a good idea. It does kill probably the most creatures because in, in reality, most organisms are actually killed by temperatures below boiling. But it, you just can't tell in an off-grid situation what the temperature is unless you have a thermometer that could measure that high. Right. But a lot of these organisms will die at 140 degrees, 160 degrees, not at necessarily at 212 degrees, which is the boiling point at sea level, at least. You can also use bleach, regular household bleach. If it's 6%, maybe 8 to 12 drops per gallon. If it's 8.25%, 6 to 8 drops per gallon. You can also use iodine, a 2% tincture of iodine. You would use Probably, I think the EPA, EPA recommends five drops per quart or per liter. Uh, if you have betadine, you would drop that since it's a higher concentration. I think it's 10%. Four drops per quart per liter would be enough. Of course, UV light, sunlight, direct sunlight would do it. If you have a clear bottle, that is, to put the water in. And eight hours in the direct sunlight using a clear plastic bottle would be very helpful. Now, when I talk about bleach and iodine, the chemical ways... To deal with this, if the water is very colored or very murky, I would double probably the dose of both bleach or iodine in any circumstance where there is murky water. So these are things that you might consider using. A lot of information can be found at water.epa.gov, so make sure you check that out and you'll be able to get a good feel for what is going on there. And so clean, disinfected water. Very important. Also, water filters are very useful. We have a lot of filters in our store. We have the Mini Sawyer. We have the Life Straw. And these will be able to deal with parasites and deal with bacteria. Unless they have a chemical aspect to the filter, though, they probably won't deal with viruses. But we're talking about amebiasis. That's a protozoa. It's a big creature. Compare, I mean, for a microscopic creature, for a microscopic creature, right? So, like, like a A virus, more complicated. Yes, and more complicated. So, this is what I think you should use. Get yourself a supply of flagell, metronidazole, or fishazole, and have that. And make sure you you know how to use one or more of these ways to disinfect water. Very, very important that you know. I think that you should know all of them. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We'll be back next time.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.